Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard. But by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the program grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to History Hack. We've got another cracker lined up with you. I've got Beth with me. Hello, Beth. How are you doing? And who have we got on today? Hi, Zach. Yeah, it's lovely to uh, to be here again, as always. Um, today, we're joined by Simon Turney. Uh, Simon is a lifelong student of Roman history, and he's the author of several books, including books called Caligula and Commodus. And today, he's going to be talking to us about another Roman figure, Agricola. So welcome, Simon, to History Hack. Hello. Uh, so let's obviously start off. First things first, we're talking about Agricola today. So what do we know about his early life? Um, surprisingly little. Um, in fact, most of what we know about Agricola altogether uh, comes from Tacitus's uh, biography. Uh, Tacitus being Agricola's son-in-law, uh, it, the biography is its more than just a biography. It's a eulogy, it's a politi- political statement, it's all sorts of things. Uh, but it remains our main source on Agricola. Uh, there are sort of bits and pieces we can use to corroborate Tacitus just to, to confirm the, the veracity uh, of his statements. So uh, what we do know about uh, Agricola's early life, um, Tacitus tells us he's from a, a, a place called Forum Uliae, which is Freus in uh, southern France, uh, which is actually not qu- can't be quite accurate uh, since his father appears to have died in Rome uh, and uh, Agricola would have been in Rome with him at the time. Um, well, sorry, Agricola's mother will have been in Rome, uh, pregnant with Agricola at the time of the father's death. So Agricola must realistically have been born in Rome. Uh, but he was raised in uh, in Freus, in southern France, uh, by his mother, his father having been executed by Caligula, um, and then sent to uh, for his, his primary education uh, from the age of about eight uh, to Marseille, which was a, a place where a lot of Romans were sent for education. It was a it was a, a, an old Greek colony and well known for its its educational and, and uh, academic uh, qualities. But we know more about his father as well, actually, uh, if that's of interest. Um, his father was a, a man called Grisinus, uh, derived from the from the the the, the word Greek. He was uh, obviously uh, had some connection to uh, to the Greek uh, cities of the area, maybe to Massilia, Marseille. Um, and he was a Julius Grisinus, so perhaps also connected to uh, Julius Caesar's colonies there, which again is Freus. Freus and Marseille are Greek, but they're also the latter is a, a the, uh, Freus is a colony founded by Julius Caesar. Uh, so the the name harkens back to the foundation of Freus, and um, Grisinus is recorded as being um, very interested in viticulture. Um, he's mentioned by uh, various other writers, including Pliny, uh, for his own writings on the subject of uh, vines and wine growing. 
Um, so it's maybe not a, a surprise that his son is given the uh, the name Agricola, which essentially means the farmer. Why does he end up being sent to Britain for the first time? There are there must be a whole kind of story of his growth to the the, the prominence that that we associate him with. So kind yeah. of talk us through that that kind of that early stage of his career and the reasons why he's sent to Britain. But also, you know, what's what's happening in Britain at, at this time? Um, yeah, well, Rome essentially works on a on a huge network of patronage and connections. Um, it's it, in Rome. It was very much a case of who you know rather than what you know. Um, despite the fact that Agricola's father is already dead long before he reaches the the age that he's looking for political and military positions, uh, you know, it's 1718. Um, there will have been huge family connections. His family seems to have been connected to a number of of other large families in Rome, well well placed families in Rome. Uh, some of whom had been involved in the invasion of Britain in 43 under Claudius. Um, so when he's looking for the first post on the Cursus Honorum, which would be a military tribuneship, a junior officer in, in a legion, uh, almost certainly he was uh, pulling on connections, strings of connections with other families. Um, one of the connections he almost certainly had was with Suetonius Paulinus, who at the time was the governor of Britain. He had been made governor of Britain. So very likely he secured a tribuneship for his first position uh, through those connections, and therefore to a, a governorship, uh, to a tribuneship in one of the legions in Britain. Um, he would be assigned as a, each legion has six tribunes. It has a senior tribune and then five junior ones. Uh, he would have been of a position to be um, a senior tribune. Um, that would have made him the third in command of the legion after the legion's own legatus and the camp, uh, sorry, the second in command uh, after the legion's legatus and before the camp prefect. Uh, he seems to have been assigned almost certainly to the second Augusta, which was based in Exeter at the time. Um, and there's, there's a reason to assume this, even though we've never been told. Um, at the time, the governor, Paulinus, is busy wading across Wales, uh, putting down rebellious tribes, the Ordovices in particular. Uh, and uh, when he is fighting uh, the, the uh, Druids, pushing them into Mona, the island of Anglesey, and finally sort of stamping out Druidry in Britain, um, he learns that, uh, Paulinus learns that Boudicca and her Iceni have revolted on the other side of the country, and immediately pulls together what force he can to go in and oppose her. One of the things we're told is that the camp prefect of the Second Augusta over in Exeter refused to move. Now, if the camp prefect is uh, refusing, that means that neither the legion's own legatus or the senior uh, tribune are present if the third in command is making the decision. Uh, the only reason we can assume that then is, is that they were seconded to Paulinus's force in Wales, which means that probably, uh, since we know that from Tacitus, that Agricola was seconded to uh, Paulinus's force, it makes it very likely he was the uh, tribune of the Second Augusta that went. Mm -hmm. So yes, he, he um, spent a few years with Paulinus traipsing across Wales, fighting the Ordovices, pushing the, uh, the, the uh, Druids and all rebellion into Anglesey, and then crossing and stamping them out, only to learn that the Iceni were revolting on the other side of the country, and then have to charge back and deal with them, which means that Agricola was almost certainly one of the officers uh, involved in fighting Boudicca as well. Can I ask about that prefect who refused to, to move the legion? Um, firstly, why and then what happened to him? Because presumably if you get an order and you're serving in the Roman army, you do as you're told. Yeah, uh, he, he, it's certainly he's... Uh, pretty much damned in Tacitus's writing for it, but uh, one has to assume that there was a very good reason. Um, a camp prefect is not a, a young political appointee, he's a very experienced military troop, a military soldier, um, officer with, with a great deal of command experience. So if he refused to move, there was a good reason. Uh, my personal theory is that since the Iceni are revolting in the east, uh, the, the Welsh tribes have all risen and they're busy fighting them in the north of Wales, that probably his own legion is spread all over the southwest, possibly some of it 
you know, taking part in the force in, in Wales. He's probably only got a minimal force there anyway. Uh, if he's been summoned to go and fight the Iceni, he's looking at marching all the way across Britain, probably with a much reduced force and marching into the unknown. Because if one tribe has risen, who knows what else is happening? Um, he may just have looked at it and said, well, that's just not feasible. Um, so obviously you've just briefly described what Agricola was doing for us um, in Britain. Um, but how much material is there available on Agricola? What kind of sources do you end up using to piece his life together? Obviously, we've talked a lot about Tacitus and his writing and so on. But is there much else on him at all? Uh, really? No. Um, <laughs> that's the short answer. Tacitus is our only direct source for Agricola. Um, mm. Over his career, there are other small things that we can use to corroborate his presence. Mm. Uh, later on, uh, particularly in, uh, during his governorship, we have a few uh, inscriptions. We have uh, a written tablet from Carlisle. Um, but mostly what we have is, is just corroboration of the events that Tacitus is talking about. Uh, the, the, the suppression of the Druids, um, the, the rise of Boudicca, these are all uh, spoken of in other Roman sources, so we know that these are happening. Um, so we know what, on the assumption that, that Tacitus is telling us the truth, that Agricola was there at the time, then we know what he's facing. Um, so, yeah, essentially we just have to sort of pick and choose what sources we can find that, that corroborate or refute any of Tacitus' material. It sounds like an absolute minefield. I mean, Beth and I, we're 19th and 20th century historians and, you know, we consider ourselves hard done by when we've only got 300 pages of a memoir to go through or something. And, and here you are sort of having to piece it all together. It must be hugely frustrating. And I'm always fascinated by this when I talk to ancient scholars that, you know, you've, you've got, it's like trying to put a jigsaw together, but somebody's just taken half of the pieces and chucked them in the bin. Yes, um, And you don't have the picture, really to kind of go by to work out what it what it's all like i mean are you able to kind of draw an archaeological stuff when it comes to agricola are there you know any other hints out there about what's happening kind of around his time to give you a sense of what he's dealing with uh, again there's a lot more later on during agricola's uh, governorship for his his early days um, as, as a tribune and then uh, when he comes back later as a legatus um We've only got sort of uh, temporary camps and things like that, which are very, very hard to date. Um, so it's, it's mostly going on written sources. Um, there are, as I say, there are uh, items we can look at later on uh, that confirm these things. But yeah, again, we're largely just having to trust Tacitus uh, for the early days. Let's um, talk about his return to Rome then. So at 22, Agricola goes back to Rome. I mean, this is sort of one of the things that was really kind of surprising to me as we kind of go through the book. You know, he's in Britain, he's back to Rome, he's in Britain, back to Rome. It's, it's like a, a constant, he must have spent half his life travelling. Um, what's he actually doing when he goes back to Rome and how significant do you think that time is in shaping his subsequent career? I think every every uh, period of his life has some significance when you, when you look into it. Um, he is, I'll just say briefly, uh, he is the only Roman we know to have served three different terms in the same province like this. Uh, so he has an unprecedented knowledge of Britain, um, far more than any other governor or military officer. Um, but again, yes, all the time when he's not in Britain, I think affects what he does when he is here. Uh, when, he's when he returns to Rome after his tribuneship, um, he spends a short time in the city. Uh, he's married. He has a son and a daughter. Um, the son will not survive, but uh, it's quite important that he ha that this happens because the cursus honorum, the, the system of, of Rome's uh, political and military posts that a, a gentleman follows, um, has set specific ages that, that uh, you can only achieve a certain position at a certain age. But there is also flexibility, particularly uh, for under Augustan laws that, that promote family and uh, an increase in population, having children allowed you to move into positions earlier. Mm. Um, so <laughs> Agricola seems to achieve certain positions that he wasn't really quite old enough for, but he's, the number of children he had moved him slightly up the scale. So, I mean, that that's affects 
his positions for a start. But also, um, there's his next position was as the Quista uh, um, to the to Asia, which is the the uh, a financial uh, position working alongside the governor. Uh, the governor in Asia at the time uh, is a man called Salvia Socio Otho Titianus. Um, and he's noted for being horribly, horribly corrupt. Uh, most governors would skim so much off the top that they would live fat for the rest of their lives. Um, but this guy, uh, Titianus, seems to have been uh, above and beyond the call of any, any avarice. Um, and he really, uh, Agricola must have learned an awful lot about uh, how not to uh, to run a, a province in his time there watching Tinianus. Um He also also uh, will later come up against uh, Otho Titianus's brother uh, in another horrible moment of his life. So there's, there's another connection there. Um, I think during this time, there's great events in Rome, which uh, Agricola assiduously avoids. Uh, sensible man that he is because this is the reign of Nero and this time you've got the great fire you've got the conspiracy of Piso that sees noblemen falling left right and centre um, and then the year of the four emperors when Nero falls and you get a, a slew of uh, brief reigns and for most of that there's no mention of what uh, what Agricola is doing so he's probably very sensibly staying out of the way while all this horrible stuff is going on um, he reappears during the year of the four emperors, um, briefly, uh, probably backing Otho, the brother of the man he had served with in Asia. Um, but during the civil war, the next thing we know during that, that year of civil war is he is racing north back to his family lands up near Freyus in, in France, uh, where his mother had been killed by, uh, Otho's, uh, forces as they rampaged across the north of Italy during the Civil War. They'd uh, pretty much damaged his, his estates and, and killed his mother. So suddenly he appears again in the, in the record there, uh, and then immediately turns around and throws in his lot with Vespasian and the Flavian family. Um, he may already have had a connection there. I go into this in, the, in my book, but um, when he'd uh, fought against Boudicca in Britain, after the war, uh, there seems to have been a number of cohorts brought over to make up the numbers in Britain from Germany. And the man who brought them was almost certainly the future Emperor Titus, the, the son of Vespasian, um, who would have been a tribune of roughly the same age as Agricola. And they would almost certainly have met at that time. So that he then throws in his lot with the Flavians uh, is, should not really be a surprise. So yeah, uh, then he's, uh, he's, as the Flavians take control in Rome at the end of the Civil War, he's given uh, the job of raising troops uh, and obviously falls into the pocket of the Flavians. Mm. It's yeah. a very important time in, in his growth, I think, and his, and his life. Yeah, it seems like it's quite a central point for him. Uh, but he does this, as we've said, and you said earlier, he's the only one that we know of who served in Britain three times. He goes back again to Britain, doesn't he? Um, what's he doing this time? What's he up to? Um, what's changed in that region since he was last there? Um, well, there's been a lot more fighting in Wales again. The, the tribes there were ever restive. Um, and during the time of the, the Civil War, there's been all sorts of problems with the, with the British legions supporting different emperors and so on. Uh, by the time Vespasian is fully in control in Rome, uh, the 20th Legion, which are based in Chester in, in Britain, uh, are actually uh, in open revolt, uh, refusing to accept imperial commands from the governor. Okay. Uh, and uh, Agricola is noted by Tacitus as having been assigned as Legatus, the commander of the 20th Legion, and sent to Britain with the, uh, the, the um, command, sort this out, uh, bring this rebellion, rebellious legion to heel, you are now their commander. Uh, interestingly, the, the man who's governing Rome at this point, uh, or who will take over the governorship, uh, sorry, governorship of Britain, um, just after Agricola arrives, is one Quintus Petilius Cerealis, a man who uh, he would have fought alongside against Boudicca, and a man who is noted for having horribly thrown away a lot of troops in uh, the Ninth Legion against Boudicca. Um, 
he was a, a bit of a, a a lunatic, I think, Keriolis. He was a, a general pattern of his day. Um, he was sometimes very successful and sometimes just pushed things too far. Mm. Um, so yeah, Agricola is assigned. He quickly brings the 20th back into line. Um, the way it's described is very strange. Um, and the, the only conclusion I can draw is that rather than punishing them, which of course would would probably be what's expected of him, but would also un be unlikely to endear him to the Legion. Uh, and rather than simply accepting them and saying, now, now, sort it out, uh, I suspect he came over and he, he just said, look, you are Legions of Rome, pull your socks up and I won't do anything about it. And essentially they immediately went, yes, sir. Um, he seems to have taken full command of the 20th, brought everything into line by the time um, Keriolis is in Britain and then immediately joins Keriolis in his campaigns. Uh, he again campaigns a little in Wales and then marches against the Brigantes in the north of Britain. Um, the Brigantes, uh, their king and queen, uh, Venutius and Cartimandua, uh, had been divorced. Uh, they hated each other at this point. Uh, Venutius uh, was staunchly anti-Roman, Cartimandua was pro-Roman. So the, the, the tribe, which pretty much covers from the M62 to uh, Adrian's Wall and coast to coast, the biggest tribe in, in, in England, uh, is split down the middle and keeps going into civil war and causing trouble in the north of Britain. And Keriolis has had enough. He moves in and he basically pushes to take control of the north of Britain and takes uh, Agricola with him. We're told uh, that he divides his army. Uh, he gives Agricola command of more than just the 20th, uh, extra troops, far more. And he seems to have split the army of Britain in two. He took one, uh, one half up the, uh, the Vale of York uh, from his fortress in York, his new fortress founded during those, those years, uh, and suppressed the, the Brigantes up there. It seems that Agricola uh, was based possibly at uh, um, Roxeter, possibly at Chester at that time, and pushed up what would become the M6 corridor um, towards Carlisle. So between them, they're suppressing the, the, the um, Brigantes up to both sides of Britain. Um, this seems to have, have culminated in uh, a, a battle which is uh, has ever been supposed, but there's never been any, found any evidence at a place called Stanwick Camp uh, in the north of, well, just south of Durham, um, at which they seem to have suppressed, finally suppressed the Brigantes and brought everything under control. Uh, by the end of Keriolis's time here and Agricola's time, uh, they've got a, a series of forts set all around the north of Britain and they're in control. So essentially, uh, in his second time in Britain, uh, another three years commanding a legion here, uh, he'll have been in Britain for about five or six years over the two positions now. He'll have uh, fought all over Wales, all over across the southeast of England against Boudicca, and now all in the north of Britain. So he's getting to know every tribe, he's getting to know the settled lands in the south, uh, he knows most of the terrain by now. Uh, there can't be a man that's familiar in Roman history with uh, Britain, even at this point, before he comes back as governor. I'm curious what you said about the lack of evidence for the Battle of Stanwick Camp. Talk us through, you know, what's meant to have happened there and the reasons why we've got this kind of mist over what's, you know, its location and the the, the reality of what actually happened there. Well, it, again, it, it comes down to lack of archaeological evidence anywhere. Um, the Brigantes uh, controlled such a vast area. Uh, but there and there are a huge number of fortresses within that that area that could have been royal strongholds. But we know there must have been two royal strongholds because they were split in two between the Warring King and Queen. Uh, one is noted as possibly being at the top of Sutton Bank and just south of the North Yorkshire Moors. Uh, the other one is this presumed site at Stanwick Camp, which is an absolutely enormous fortification. Um, it's, it's, it's a series of ramparts and ditches uh, that enclose an area that, that well, it's, it's huge. It's bigger than a modern town. Um, so it, it has to have been a place of vast importance. Uh, there are some signs, excuse me, of damage to some of the ramparts that are, are suggested as having been part of this campaign. We know that, uh, that 
from Tacitus at least, that Cerealis actually achieved a victory, that he enclosed the Brigantes and he brought them to heel. So it happened somewhere. Um, and the only place we can assume then that um, given the, the lines of forts that they've created, it seems that Agricola came probably from Carlisle down across the Stainmore Pass, uh, which would pretty much bring him directly out at uh, Stanwyck Camp. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Um, it seems very likely that that's, that's the site. But until eventually some farmer uh, plows up a, a whole collection of arms and armor, we'll never know. <laughs> One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. It's always the way with archaeology, isn't it? It's always the chance discoveries that actually have, have the biggest impact. He goes back to Rome. Like we said, you know, that he, he's like, you know, sort of almost a Roman ping pong ball when it comes to Britain, Rome, Britain, Rome. Um, so why? Why does he have to go back to Rome? He then returns as governor again. So um, talk us through why he's summoned back because you, and then why he's he's then sent back to Britain. And, and crucially, what's he meant to do this time? And, you know, why does he get this job? Is this, as you say, you know, the fact that he's been there twice, so it's obvious he's the guy for the job, or is this about passion just as much as anything else? Well, firstly, uh, every Roman uh, senatorial or, or equestrian uh, who follows the, 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 the cursus honorum has a set series of postings. Um, so he was only ever going to be there for probably three years or so as a commander of the legion, and then he would be... Uh, he'd return to Rome, he'd be appointed to another position elsewhere uh, to move gradually up the ladder, uh, at the top of which is consul. Um, so uh, the fact that he's removed is, is, is nothing unusual. Uh, in fact, we're led to uh, the suggestions in Tacitus, we're led to believe that um, even as he was being brought back from Britain, Vespasian, the emperor at the time, is already telling him that he will have Britain as a, as a governorship but he has to achieve the other steps on the cursus honorum before we can have that so he's already been vouchsafed that he will be going back um he is a man who's proved himself to the flavians he, he raised troops immediately at the end of the civil war uh he's brought a rebellious legion to heal and conquered a huge uh, swathe of terrain along with Cerealis. so he's very much proved himself uh and he's tied to the family that that they should continue to, to value him and, and put him in positions uh, is no surprise. Um, but again, he has to follow the cursus norum. So the next thing he needs to do is govern a, a province. Um, there are every, uh, every governor will govern two provinces. The first one will be essentially a, a test run, a less important province. And then uh, later on, a, an important province, a border province with legions. 
So his first province he's sent to after his after his command of the 20th is Aquitania in the southwest of, of France. Um, it's a place with no legions, but also with no real trouble. It, it's a it's a, a good place to hone your your um, your uh, political skills and your economic skills. So we're told at the time that uh, he, he he acts with perfect uh, decency in his time there. He does not do anything untoward. Uh, obviously, he's learned about the corruption of governors in his time in Asia, and he really does not do the same thing. He, he rules, if Tacitus is to be believed, he rules uh, Aquitania with a perfectly, an, an iron hand in a velvet glove, I suppose is the best way to put it. He keeps perfect control, but does nothing wrong, nothing to, to incur any troubles. Um, the interesting thing, though, if you look at the terrain in Aquitania and the people, um, as if you're thinking that maybe Vespasian is grooming him for the position in Britain, there's a good reason to send him to Aquitania because the terrain is very much like the north of Britain. It's, it's hills and valleys and, uh, and the people speak an, an offshoot of the Gallic tongue, which the British tribes will also speak. There's a certain cultural background. The gods they worship in Aquitania are the same gods you'll find in Britain. Uh, it's the perfect place, place to send somebody just to, to practice for as a dry run for, for Britain. And I, I, that's what I see it as. Um, then uh, at the same time, he's, uh, he's marrying his daughter to Tacitus, is, who is the one who will write his biography uh, during this time. Um, and then, yes, once his, his governorship's done, he's seeking position again, and uh, Vespasian is ready to appoint him. And so obviously, as, as you've quite rightly pointed out throughout this podcast, Britain is quite an unruly section of the, uh, of the Roman Empire, isn't it? Um, how does Agricola go about trying to deal with this unruly province. Um, does he does he break it down for us? Because there's a lot going on at this time. Is he does he rule with an iron fist or and so on? Or how does he how does he bring the the province to heel? Yeah, uh, well, yeah, as you say, it was very much a restive place. Uh, the Brigantes, although they were now under control, had been causing trouble for decades. Uh, every time the, the, the various Welsh tribes were settled, they suddenly seemed to reappear and crop up and cause trouble again. Um, and that's, there's no different to when uh, Agricola finally comes over as governor. Mm. Um, in fact, the Ordovices, who were already supposedly a, uh, a settled and controlled tribe, uh, had massacred a cavalry garrison during the winter before he arrived. So the first thing he did upon arriving, which is something that no Roman does, you don't campaign in winter, it's a stupid time. They wait for, for spring, for, for the official campaigning season. Not so Agricola, he arrives in the, in the autumn uh, as the campaigning season is ended and immediately grabs troops, storms straight into Wales and deals with the Ordovices, puts it all down, fights across to uh, Anglesey once again, as he's already done once under another governor, uh, and essentially puts his house in order in in the first few months of his governorship in a time when the, the natives must have been going, what is this guy doing? You know, no Roman campaigns like this. But then he's familiar with the terrain, he's familiar with the people, and he probably knew a lot of the officers in the legions. He's been there three times and he's served with two of the legions. Mm. Um, so yeah, what you've got then is a man who, who knows the people, he knows the, the province, and he knows his own army and his own his own administration there um in his time as governor yes he conquers he takes control he is a military man he is a general um there is not really a year where he's not campaigning he's always on the frontier always pushing but even as he continues the conquest of britain heading ever north uh tacitus tells us all sorts of interesting things about what happens during the winter because um, he seems to, to campaign, as Romans generally did during the summers, uh, expanding northwards, taking tribes under control. But he also, in the winter, is Romanizing the people of Britain. We're told by Tacitus uh, in, in a very damning little sentence that the British were, were essentially making their own, their own chains as slaves. They were taking on the toga, uh, you know, eagerly taking on the toga. Um, they, were, they were becoming more and more Roman. He was fostering the, the Romanness 
of the British people. Mm -hmm. um, so he, yes, he's he's doing two things at once. He's he's the military man pushing north, but in the lulls in, as he pushes, he consolidates what he's already got. He romanizes. Um, at this time, he's also building grand monuments to the emperors. Uh, he's uh, putting together new road systems. We're told that there were there were places where grain couldn't reach, and that was causing troubles, which may have been behind the odd overseas rising again. Uh, and we know that that Agricola puts road systems in so that the grain can reach these tribes. One such road being the one that runs across the north of Wales. Um, so he is essentially. Um, <laughs> buying the support of, of rebellious tribes. He's inveigling his way into, into the local uh, aristocracy and making them more and more Roman. Um, so yeah, he, he's, he's expanding, but he's consolidating at the same time. It reminds me of a certain Monty Python sketch. What have the Romans ever done for us? You know, <laughs> actually, they brought us grain and, and fine clothing and, and so on and so forth. Um, I'm curious what you say about the expansion, though, because I'm, I, I don't know much about Roman history, but the little bits that I have picked up, it seems that there is this desire amongst many governors to sort of establish their reputations by going on at least one campaign in order to say, look, I went and did my bit. I expanded the, the limits of the Roman Empire in my particular province. Um, and then you can kind of use that to, to bolster your reputation back in Rome. Do we have any sense of Agricola's motives in pushing further and further north? Is this that kind of sense of almost, you know, one more town, one more tribe, and then perhaps we will have peace? Or is this that Agricola knows what the expectations are? And so he goes on campaign because, hey, he's the governor. He's expected to keep pushing the limits of Rome. And, and this is, as you say, a frontier province. Yeah, there is very much a history of governors of provinces like that uh, pushing for campaigns and conquest, Julius Caesar being the prime example. Um, and there will certainly have been a level of that with Agricola. There, there must have been the desire to, to prove himself. I mean, he's already fought alongside uh, fairly impressive and powerful governors who've done much the same. So he'll be wanting to, to, to make his own name. Um, but also there's two other factors. There's, there's the fact that uh, the more you take control, it's an island, the more you take control, the less there is waiting, the less trouble there can be. If you can actually take control of the whole island and Romanize it, then, you know, the, it's, it's going to be a dream to, to, to run. Uh, but the most important thing, I think, uh, is the, the emperors at the time. When he's first sent over there, the emperor is uh, Vespasian. Um, Vespasian was involved in the conquest of, of Britain originally in 43 AD. He'd been the, the general commanding the, uh, the, the second Augusta in South Wales. Um, so he had a vested interest in Britain. He'd been, been the man who'd started, one of the men who'd started the conquest. He must have wanted to see it complete. Um, and his successors, because when uh, Agricola is over here as a governor, he's over here over through three emperors, through uh, Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian. Um, when he's uh, when, the, all three emperors must have looked at the at, at Britain and said, "This needs finishing." Uh, particularly Domitian, I think, uh, who was the the emperor for most of his time as governor. Um, Fact is that Britain had four legions, which is a large number. It's, it's about the most that was ever really uh, assigned to any province. That's an awful lot of troops. Twenty thousand legionaries plus all the uh, the ancillary and auxiliary troops in Britain. It's a huge number of men to keep this island under control and to, to fight the conquest. If the island could be completed, you know, as a conquest, if it could be completely Romanized, a large number of those men could be withdrawn, which would be useful elsewhere. So there's a lot of considerations that, as to why Britain needed to be completely conquered. Um, but I think imperial pressure must have been the prime concern. I think when he was sent, it was, it was you are now the governor of Britain, control it, finish it for us. And I think that's, that's something that carried on through all the emperors that, that, that sent him there, that kept him there. Mm. So ultimately, how successful is he? Because, you know, you've outlined some of the successes and some of the benefits that he brings uh, in terms of road networks and kind of general administration. 
But he's also, I believe, involved in the story behind The Eagle of the Ninth, isn't he? And I've got to be honest, most of my knowledge about The Eagle of the Ninth comes from that film with Channing Tatum. So <laughs> I'm not going to pretend that I know what I'm talking about, but it's, it's one of those sort of infamous moments, as far as I understand. Right, well, uh, as for his level of success, I think the, the fact that we are still talking about him now says the most. Um, mm. uh, he's essentially moves north throughout his seven or eight years as governor here. He moves north in pieces, uh, always enveloping the next set of tribes while talking to the ones on either side, getting allies. Um, there are certain tribes that he certainly seems never to have fought, that no, no Roman governor seems to have fought because they've just sold their lot in with Rome, as often happened. Um, so he gradually moves north. He takes in tribe after tribe after tribe um, and ends, ends up with this loose confederation of tribes that we know as the Caledonians, the Caledoniae, which essentially occupy the highlands of Scotland. Um, at this point, he's been fighting all the way up uh, the east coast of, of uh, Scotland. We know that the northernmost uh, forts, the northernmost permanent fort is a place called Stracathro, which is about halfway up the east coast uh, of Scotland there. And the northernmost temporary camp is at a place called Murifold, uh, which is up near Elgin, right, at, right up, you know, level with Inverness. So the fact is, they, they went that far north, without a doubt. Uh, Tacitus tells us that, uh, that he discovered um, the island of Thule, that he visited the island of Thule, which is unidentified, but the most likely candidate is the Shetlands. Um, so it, and it's even possible, reading into other, other sources, that there was a, a temporary military uh, naval base on the Shetlands. Possible, not guaranteed. Um, he circumnavigated the island. Uh, we are told that in more than one source. Um, he had a, a unusual for a governor. Uh, Agricola had a, a bit of a reliance on the Navy. Um, the Navy was always considered a sort of secondary source of, of military. Uh, the, the, it was not a, a real um, force to rely upon in conquest. But Agricola, of course, uh, grew up in a, a naval town in Freus in southern France, which was a base at the time for the Roman fleets. He'll have seen the fleets from square one. Uh, he'll have seen them used throughout his time. And it, I think maybe having been brought up in a naval town, he saw more use for them than many governors. Uh, and he certainly seems to have used the Navy in the conquest of Scotland far more than any governor is noted of doing beforehand. Um, hence the fact that perhaps that he, he's the first to circumnavigate Britain. Um, what you're talking about, the, the Eagle of the Ninth. Well, the story of the, of the Ninth, the loss of the Ninth is, is seriously overblown. Uh, <laughs> um, the first trouble they ever ran into, as I mentioned earlier, was under Petilius Cerealis against Boudicca when he takes half the, the, the ninth against Boudicca and walks straight into a trap and escapes only with the cavalry and runs away. Um, the second time this happens to the ninth, there, uh, there are three legions marching into the, into the highlands of Scotland uh, to counter three native columns that are, that are coming for Roman territory. Uh, that's a longer story, but the, the fact is the three legions are moving probably up three river valleys uh, from uh, what is now northern Fife uh, and into the highlands. We're told at the time that the ninth is attacked by the, the locals. It's selected uh, as the target of the, of the natives because it's under strength. Uh, it seems from uh, a tombstone that, that records, uh, records this that at least a vexillation of the ninth legion uh, was drawn to uh, Germany to fight for the Emperor Domitian's war against the Chatai in Germany. So it may be that, you know, there's only maybe half the Ninth Legion there and the rest are all busy fighting in, in Germany. Um, so the, the Ninth get attacked in a night attack by the uh, the natives. They, they're taken so by surprise and overwhelmed by numbers that they fight hard, but the, the enemy actually get through the gate. But laying any of this blame at Agricola's feet seems seems um, unlikely. Um, obviously, there's some some great strategic uh, move by the Caledoni to attack the one weak legion, and if anything, Agricola comes out of it as the hero of the day because it's uh, he, with his uh, fastest moving troops, who come to the the aid of the ninth, 
uh, hoving into view in the morning and then pressing the enemy against the gates and actually uh, breaking the Caledonia even as they're uh, busy fighting the ninth. So it's Agricola who comes to their, their aid and, and chases them off, the Caledonia disappearing off into the wilds and the ninth are saved again. So <laughs> I think um, realistically it's it's actually a victory despite how it immediately seems. Um, and it, then of course there's there's Agricola's other great victory, the uh, Mons Graupius, which some people will tell you didn't happen, but um, essentially it's a, the battle, he manages to bring the Caledoni uh, to face him uh, somewhere up probably in the Grampians. Uh, my favorite source is the, the hills of Benaki, um, where he actually, his legions, actually his, his auxiliary troops, uh, finally absolutely trounce the confederation of the Caledoni so badly that the the enemy are fleeing off into the valleys and uh, we're told that they, they burn their own houses and in, in horror and flee and disappear and it'll be decades before they ever rise again. Um, although there is, again, no evidence have been, has been found of the battle, but um, while there's no corroboration for it, the simple fact is that Tacitus is writing this uh, biography, he's telling these events, and this biography will have come out while there will still have been plenty of people who had been in Britain with his father-in-law who could read this, this account. And realistically, if he was lying about great events, great battles and great campaigns, we would have heard about it. Somebody who had been there would have pulled him up on it. So I think we can assume to some extent that, that Tacitus is telling us the, the, the main events here are, are accurate that Agricola saves the ninth, that he brings the Caledoni to battle at Mons Graupius, and that essentially he conquers Britain completely. I am scandalised that Hollywood has completely made up an entire film based around utter, utter nonsense. I thought the ninth <laughs> were completely destroyed, so it shows you what little I know. Um, uh, the, the ninth is actually uh, attested under the reign of Hadrian, uh, you know, 40 years later in Nijmegen in Holland. <laughs> oh. Oh, the glamour of Hollywood. Eh? <laughs> um, so obviously, he's, I mean, he, he certainly has an eventful life. Um, I don't think anyone could take that away from him. But and it's obviously been quite eventful up until, you know, these his early years are very they're quite something aren't they it's quite something to listen to and um, what about his his later life where does he end up and how does it all end for him uh to some extent it, it's it's rather an anticlimax. um essentially what, what happens with britain of course is that because we know that scotland was not uh did not remain conquered um and domitian the emperor is uh, repeatedly battered for having withdrawn the troops and withdrawn from Scotland and le left it back for the Scots. Um, but there are good reasons for that. Uh, Domitian was uh, pressed with another war over in uh, the Danube. The Dacians had crossed the Danube and had uh, invaded Roman territory, killed a governor. There was a huge war going on there. Domitian needed troops. So he just could not maintain the newly conquered lands of, of Scotland. He needed the men for other borders. Um, so that, I mean, we can't take anything away from Agricola's conquest just because it was then summarily abandoned afterwards. Mm. Um, Agricola himself heads back to Rome again, as always. He's, although he has done an enormous term in uh, in Britain. Most governors are only assigned for, say, three years. He's been there for seven or eight. Um, continually uh, extending his governorship by Domitian. Um, what we're told of his later life, we're told of by Tacitus, but at this point Tacitus' uh, story tends to drift off into character assassination of the emperor. He spends most of the, the closing chapters of this eulogy uh, lauding how wonderful Agricola is and uh, spending, spending time telling us how despicable and what a Disney villain Domitian was. Um, some of which we can actually see through as, as merely um, him uh, sort of following the trend of damnation because after Domitian died, of course, he was, he was damned by the Senate. Um, so Tacitus suddenly has to, uh, has to turn on an emperor to whom he owed most of his own political career. Um, 
so we, we're told that that uh, Agricola slinks back into Rome uh, in quietly, tries to avoid drawing the emperor's attention. Um, we're told that that he's uh, passed over for command in in this new campaign against Dacia, even though the people of Rome are begging for him. Um, a lot of this doesn't really hold water. Uh, the command in, in Dacia, in, in the Danube, was given to men who were appropriate for the job, uh, very good generals in their own right. Um, Domitian, his ire at, at Agricola seems completely uh, idiotic uh, and, and false. Uh, we know that even Tacitus, who, who's busy damning him, says that Domitian sends his own physicians when uh, Agricola is unwell. Um, what if you read between the, the lines, what seems to happen is that Agricola has spent most of his life fighting and commanding uh, armies abroad, and he just settles into a quiet retirement, possibly suffering from some sort of long-term illness that gradually brings him down, uh, and then dies peacefully at home. Kind of, kind of it wanted him to like go, go down in blaze like in blazes of glory you know like just in another campaign somewhere or something but i suppose it's quite a nice uh summing up then to the end of his life where he just gets to be peaceful i suppose so what you're saying beth is you wanted him to suffer some kind of bloody death do you know what i just feel like if you if you get if you've got that kind that your life has been so focused around all of that fighting and so on it almost feels like it should have been that way but it's nice that it wasn't that way i suppose is what i'm saying i mean give the guy a break Beth. he'd <laughs> earned his like quiet retirement looking after his his i don't know i was gonna say looking after his tomatoes but as we heard from um simon scarry they didn't have tomatoes in in rome at that point um so you know you know i don't know you know quietly farming his land or whatever um he he deserved it no i'm no i'm 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 kind of liking agricola it's it's been a really interesting story simon thank you so much for sharing this with us your book agricola architect of roman britain is out now folks it'll be on the history hack bookstore link in the description go check it out go buy it it's a brilliant read and simon thank you so much for joining us on history hack thank you and thank you for letting me uh espouse wildly about agricola <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.